There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. Hi everyone, I'm Tiffany Hoyd, and you're listening to HBCU Four Six Eight, the Roden Fellows Podcast. I'm filling in for our. Real host, Bill Roden, he's on assignment. I'm coming to you from the Mecca, yes, Howard University in Washington, D.C. And I'm on the line with my co-host, Tucker Toole, from Morehouse College in Atlanta. What's going on, everybody? Um, I'm just happy that we were able to pull out the victory this week, weekend against Benedict. We've been winning in different ways every week. I'm looking forward to this upcoming week, homecoming against Fort Valley. So we'll see what, what we have in store this this week. And last but not least, we have Isaiah George calling in from Morgan State University in Baltimore. Hi, everybody. It's uh, good to be back on the show. And sadly, Morgan couldn't pull out a victory as we uh, lost to Howard this past weekend. Yeah, Isaiah, y'all tried to give us a run for our money. You definitely did. That, that line wrecking core is something special. But, of course, the Bison come out on top. We already knew that was going to happen. Uh, but in moving on, we got a great lineup for us today. We're talking to author Camille Acker about her new book, Training School for Negro Girls. Then in the second half of the show, we'll see how professors at Morehouse, Morgan, and the Howard University help their students to understand Kanye in his recent visit to the White House. But before we dive in, the World Series is just around the corner. The Astros shocked the world and a lot of folks when they won last year. Who are you guys rooting for this year, Tucker and George? Well, I'm going to have to go with the Red Sox just because the Red Sox are too powerful. You know, they got Mookie Betts, they got J.D. Martinez, and even on defense, you know, and their and their bull their bullpen is is very strong. So, um uh, I'm going to have to go with the Red Sox for the World Series this year. Um I think the Dodgers and the Red Sox uh, go to the World Series, and I think the Dodgers are going to come away with that one. Um, they just have a really good team, especially in the offensive end. The power they have, Puig and, and Manny, and then the bullpen that they have is just, I think it's just too strong. So I think they come out with the World Series. For my World Series prediction, I'm going to go with the home team. I'm going to go with the Dodgers. After Yasil Puig put on a great show against the Brewers, why not the Dodgers, right? With movies like Girls Trip and Napoli Ever After and television shows like Insecure and Queen Sugar, it's becoming increasingly clear that there's an appetite for stories about black women and our experiences. The book world is following suit. Earlier this year, several acclaimed authors like Brittany Cooper and Morgan Jenkins and even Nettie Okafor have come out with books, fiction and nonfiction, detailing what it's like for black and brown women and girls to live, work and love in different communities. Philadelphia-based author Camille Acker has joined the club with her first book, Training School for Negro Girls, which came out earlier this month from the Feminist Press. This is a collection of short stories by women and girls in the district, the issues they face, and the people they love. 
Camille is also a HU alumnus, Howard University, and she's in the New York studio today. Welcome to the show, Camille. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. It is our pleasure. We appreciate you. But my main question for you is what attracted you to the illustrious Howard University? <laughs> uh, you know, I I grew up in D.C., so Howard was very much um, a, a large presence in my imagination. Um, both of my parents also have degrees from, from Howard and other family members, um, and I I didn't expect necessarily I was going to end up there. Um, I thought I was going to leave D.C., um, but my first two weeks on Howard's campus, I just thought this is exactly where I want to be. Um, I, I loved, loved my four years there. And so you you seem to have a broad experience with Howard's homecoming then. Who is your favorite homecoming artist of all time? And who are you looking for this year? Because I know you'll be at Howard homecoming. You know, I'm going to miss it this year, probably with, with the book um, being out. So I'm I'm sad about that. But oh. um, but I mean, you know, there's some old school. I mean, Biggie rocking, you know, Howard Homecoming. I mean, that's a classic moment. So. All right. And uh, you received your MFA from New Mexico State. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, Aaron Matthewson, we have another uh, New Mexico uh, person here with us at the Roden Fellows. Yes. He is our outstanding producer. Um, but how was that experience? Because that's, that's far away. Yeah, it, it is. Um, and I had been living in New York for, for like a decade before I went there. So I've been, you know, very East Coast centered, um, you know, growing up in DC, going to Howard, then living in New York. So, um, New Mexico is definitely a change. Um, but, you know, one thing I can definitely say, like, Writing in the desert um, is is really good. Uh, it's very quiet, so it it helps you to be able to create in a way. Sometimes you know you wouldn't be able to create in the city. Who have you considered to be you know some some of the some of the great some of the great authors, or who who are some authors that have influenced you? Uh, so I mean, classic like Toni Morrison um, definitely was a, a big influence. Um, also a Howard alum. Just want to add that in. Um, <laughs> And um, Edward whoop, P. Whoop. Jones. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, you said whoop whoop. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> and uh, Edward P. Jones, who um, is uh, a writer who also grew up in D.C. Um, and he has a collection called Lost in the City, um, has a novel called The Known World. Um, he was also an influence on me. Um, yeah, those are, those are okay. two of the big ones. Yeah. What? would you say was your motivation for for writing your book yeah i really wanted to put on the page the experiences um of growing up in dc of being um, a black girl in dc a black woman in dc you know talking about intersectionality is something that we do a lot more now and talk about race and gender mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's also important to think about even in much wider ways. So, um, you know, what does it mean to be, um, a black woman in a working class job? You know, what does it mean to be an older black woman to add in all of those different layers? And I really loved growing up in DC and I love, you know, DC as a city. And so I, um, I wanted to make it a character and um, a, a, a place, you know, a setting for, for these for these women and girls and their stories. Hey, Camille, um, I'm also 
uh, I was born in D.C. and I, was, I grew up um, in Temple Hill, so okay. I'm pretty familiar with the culture and everything. And I'm also pretty familiar with the fact that a lot of people, when they look at D.C., they uh, they see basically just the surface, or, um, you know, like the the White House, the Capitol, politics and everything like that, but they don't get to see the culture and everything that you got to express in your book. Was that one of the reasons that you wanted to uh, write this as well, to show the other side of D.C. that people don't get to see? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I can remember people saying to me when I would tell them I grew up in D.C., they were like, oh, people live there? You know, where people thought it was only the government, you <laughs> yeah. know? And I was like, yes, I, I people live there. Did you see the president all the time? <laughs> yes, you know, yes. From- no, exactly, exactly. And certainly, I mean, obviously, government is, you know, is a big influence. I mean, a lot of people work for the, you know, federal government in D.C., but um, there is so much more to it. And I think a lot of people when they come, um, you know, maybe less so in the last decade or, you know, but like people still it's sort of like you go see the Capitol, you go see the White House, you know. Um, but the lives that people are living day to day in D.C., I, I did wanted to want to capture that. And, um, you know, the rhythm and the feeling of D.C. Um, to try to get that in this book. In, in your book, you also kind of touched on gentrification and stuff like that. And that's something that that uh, D.C. has been going through for the last couple of years, and it's changing, you know, going away a little bit from its nickname of Chocolate City. What made you want want to uh, you bring some of that in your book with your characters? Yeah, I, I did also. I, I sort of saw this book even as a time capsule in a way, um, you know, kind of being able to preserve some of the, um, the feeling of, you know, D.C. Um, and... DC has changed so much. I mean, my parents still live there, and so I go back to visit them. And every time I go, even if I go a couple of times, you know, in a year, it just feels like, wait, where did that come from? When, when did that go up? You know, <laughs> um, and uh, especially when I'm around Howard and Shaw and U Street, it's just it's very different. And so, you know, and I think it, obviously people are going to have their different versions of a city when they live there and different experiences. But I did want to be able to to capture um, some of what I saw in D.C. when I was growing up there. Um, I saw that your uh, your character, I believe, Beth, the TSA agent. Yes. From that, that excuse me, the TSA agent that never flew. Um, I, I saw that that was probably the quickest character that you that you made. So what was the character that probably took the longest or the hardest to create? Well, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> uh, so probably there's a, a story that I have um, called Strong Men. Um, and uh, the protagonist of that story, her name is Bit. Um, and that one probably took me longer than any of the rest of them to get to a first full draft. Um, and part of that is because I, I'm trying to capture um, what's going on with her personally, um, but also what's going on in her family. And so I was trying to navigate shaping and forming her and then also um, her family members in their, with their own personalities and then how all those personalities intersect. <clears throat> Excuse me, and also there's a uh, brother in one of the stories uh, that is really in love with Lynn Bias, and it's it's it was kind of cool to see because I know growing up in the area, uh, Oheads loved to talk about Lynn Bias. Everybody um, liked to talk about Lynn Bias because he 
you know, he's from the area, Sarasville High School and the University of Maryland and everything like that. Did you actually like him as a player? Did you actually get to see him play? Was that part of your influence putting him in the book? So, yeah, I, I, I didn't get to see him play. Um, but I do remember, I mean, I was a kid, um, you know, when he got drafted by the Celtics and then, you know, obviously when he died. And um, it was definitely something that I um, made an impression on me. Um, that I remembered, you know, from years after that. And, um, when I was writing the book, I knew there were some characters that were going to be in there. I mean, Marion Barry is a drop, backdrop in one. Um, and as I started writing that same story, Strong Men, um, I really thought Lynn Bias should show up. Um, and, yeah, you know, and it intersects with the story about about the brother who really loves him and is also struggling to figure out his life and find himself. The brother I know um, in the story actually went to Howard University. So it was one of those, uh, I mean, was his character based off maybe someone that you knew when you were at Howard? Um, so no, so that's part of the struggle is that he is supposed to be going to Howard um, and he doesn't want to go. Oh, uh, okay. Um, and but so he's not based on anyone in particular, but he is based on, um, I mean, different black men I've known um, and black boys of sort of reaching this moment. And I think a lot of us have this moment, you know, where you're trying to figure out your path and you have two ways that you can go. And, um, you know, this young guy is trying to figure out he's trying to make a choice. Um, and he, in some ways, feels like he's more grown up than he is. Um, but also, that's the way you end up growing up, you know, that you um, you have to make hard decisions. And so he's in a moment where he's, he's having to make a hard decision. You talked about the men in your life uh, leading towards some of your characters. But as far as the women in your life, did they help you in like I don't know if your grandmother helped you develop one of the characters or if these are just people that you've seen in DC yeah I mean my family is definitely a big influence on on the voice in this book um and and like I said being able to represent like the full scope of of black girl and womanhood um I have some dynamic women in my family who are you know smart and funny and um truth tellers and I definitely wanted to capture some of those um, personality traits in, in this book. So I think, um, you know, I think all my, my, my aunts and cousins and, uh, you know, my mom and my sister probably see themselves or connect with a lot of these characters because of that. Who, who did you relate to the most? Uh, so I, I think, there's a little bit of me in all of these characters. I mean, nothing is um, is autobiographical, but all of the things that they're going through, um, I understand. Um, I had a mentor who, you know, people say, uh, write what you know. And a mentor once said to me, when people say that, what they mean is what you what you've experienced, like what you feel, you know, when they say write what you know. Um, and so a lot of the feelings of like wanting to belong and wanting to find your place and navigating love and relationships, navigating career choices, um, all of those things are, are 
definitely things that I've experienced, you know, I'm still experiencing. Um, so I think across where a lot of these, these characters, even the ones who are more difficult, um, I, I understand what they're experiencing, what they're going through. Um, so there's probably a little bit of me in, in all of them. Okay. Um, were there any characters that didn't make it into the book? And if so, why? Yeah, so there were there were two stories that um, were cut from the original draft I did of the collection, um, and really they were cut because they just didn't seem to fit in the same universe with these characters. Um, the you know the collection goes from the '80s to the Obama era, so it's not so much that all of these characters are like in the exact same moment at the exact same time, but. Um, there is a, I think a like thematically something that's happening in all of the stories, um, and those two two stories were just sort of outliers in that way. Um, but you know, I'll go back to them one day. Maybe that'll be the the next collection. How was your pitch process, and why the feminist press? So. I mean, my book ended up with Feminist Press in like a really wonderful sort of different way, which is um, they put a call out for debut works of fiction by um, women of color. And I submitted my book and um, I actually didn't win, but they they really liked the book. Um, and so and it's it's wonderful. I mean, there's uh, a few other women who also um were able to publish with them through that process. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to like, to be able to get more voices into the world? How can you open up the process of, of finding writers? Um, so that's, that's how it ended up that I was with them, but I would never have submitted my book if they weren't the phenomenal publisher that they are. So. All right. And what was your pitch process? Like, as far as like, how did you go to the drawing board and submit it to a publishing house? I'm just saying this for young up and coming writers how should they go about their process? Yeah, well, one thing that I had to, uh, I mean, that I did with them, and I, I'd also um, sent some of the stories out before. Um, definitely querying um, is a big thing that you'll have to do as a writer. So basically that's being able to tell um, a literary journal or an agent or a publisher what your book is about. Um, and especially if it's a work of fiction, you really need to have finished it so someone can see the full scope of what you've written. Um, and I mean, one place I, you know, tell people to start with, like if they're trying to figure out agents or even editors, you know, who might be good for their work, um, is to go to the acknowledgements page of books that they love, um, you know, books that for writers who they feel some sort of affinity uh, for and see who their agent is, see who published them. Um, and that's a good place to start to be able to figure out where your book might find a home. And who is the audience, the selected audience? I know this is a book about black women, but who is the selected audience for this book? Well, I mean, I do see, you know, the primary audience as being like, um, black women and I would say girls over 16 um, since there, there is some, some, some adult matter in the, in the book that, that maybe wouldn't be suitable for girls who are under 16. Um, but I do also see a larger audience of, of women of color, women, men. Um, I think a lot of the themes that the book is, is talking about, you know, about 
being seen about um being on a on a journey um to figure out who you are um and how all of us get trained to try to meet the expectations of culture or society rather than figuring out who we really are um and i think that that's something that um anybody can relate to um with this being like your debut book um it's gotten like a really a lot of good reviews how 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 much does that mean to you you know with especially with the process that you had to go through with trying to get this this thing uh, published it's an amazing moment i i have to say um to think for a long time about any goal that you have um, and then to see it realized um, is is phenomenal. Um, and I don't, I'm, you know, I'm really gratified I had an event last night and there's some more to come for this week. Um, being able to talk one-on-one to people, too, um, who are engaging with the work, and, and that's really satisfying to to see people connecting with it um, and see that, you know, the book has some meaning for them. That's been wonderful. So have you thought about anything that's next when it comes to like any other books coming out? So I'm working on a novel um, and I also have uh, the very beginning stages of a nonfiction um, book as well. So um, yeah, I've, I've got about four or five books in my head or, you know, s- somewhere on my, on my laptop, um, in my like ideas folder. Um, so I'm hoping to do a lot more writing in the coming years. Um, I know, I know we've been asking you a lot about your, your book and, and your writing. What do you, what do you like to do in your, in your spare time or your free time? So I am a big, uh, reader. I'm also a big TV watcher and, um, and, and, cinemaphile so I, I love movies i love television and i you know th- those are probably the big ones hey camille from the book um what do you what's the biggest thing that you want people to take away from it i i think i i really want people to see black women and girls um to really see us in all of our dynamism and all of our multiplicity um that we are many things not a monolith um and um i hope yeah to really leave with a sense of them with a sense of the city too uh with a sense of dc um that's what i hope people take away so camille what do you think the draw is for this uh newfound appetite for uh black books and black television um, I mean, I think it's a long overdue acknowledgement that there's not just one kind of person who, you know, has an experience in this country. Um, I'm hoping that it explodes even more, you know, that we get even more stories uh, of everyone, you know, of black folks, of other people of color. I it's it's so profound to be able to see your experience um in the wider world. And um, I think everyone should be able to have that experience. Hey, I don't know a better way to wrap it than that. Uh, We're going to take a short break. Again, thank you so much, Camille. We're going to come back, check in with uh, several HBCU professors about how they're addressing Kanye. So stay tuned.
So in our last show, we spoke about Kanye's appearance on Saturday Night Live a few weeks ago. Last week, he made headlines again by going to the White House and speaking with President Trump about criminal justice reform, mental health, and a lot of other issues, including alternate universes. Hmm. But instead of just rehashing the visit and sharing our reactions, which we will, we thought it would also be useful to see how professors at our respective schools felt about his platform and how they address it in their classes. To help us with this, we have David Dennis, who teaches advanced news writing at Morehouse College. He's a senior culture editor for Interactive One. You may have seen his work in the Undefeated Complex, The Atlantic, and other outlets. Welcome to the show, David. Uh, thank you. Thank you all for having me. I know I know. when I took your class, Professor Dennis, you know, we would always talk about what was going on in the culture, you know, what, what's going on you know, in the time right now. But so, so what, what do you, are, are you guys talking about Kanye in, in class right now? Uh, yeah, so there's a little bit of, um, you know, we're having some, some Kanye um, discussions about what he's doing. There's a lot of uh, people being sort of perplexed by, by the decisions he's been making. A lot of folks um, are sort of uh, ready to move on from Kanye, you know, and, and Kanye is sort of like, that's sort of my generation of an MC, right? That's of, of an artist, and a lot of uh, you know college students that I've, I've learned are not necessarily as emotionally connected to him as somebody you know my age who sort of came up with him when he was doing college dropout, and you know when he started, it was a totally different art form. Rap was in a, in a totally different place. I mean, there was somebody like Kanye West who at the time was not rapping about the club or you know, the hood he grew up in and all that stuff, like, it seems sort of unfamiliar that somebody like him could could top the charts. I mean, 2003, it was 50 Cent, it was Nelly, it was Jay-Z, it was Eminem, stuff like that. But So Kanye West was, like, really, you know, sort of a um, proverbial saying, but he really sort of changed mm-hmm. the game uh, when, he, when he came up. And so I noticed that I have more, you know, people my age have more of a connection to his growth than, than the college students. So, you know, people just sort of more not necessarily as emotionally attached to what he's doing or, or as upset about it as people people my age might be. And we all know he met with Trump um, recently in the Oval Office, and he, he got a lot of cri- criticism from Twitter and celebrities and even some of his friends. Do you think anything that he said uh, with President Trump was useful? Well, I mean, you gotta you gotta um, have the belief that talking to President Trump in the first place is useful, right? To think that what he right. said is useful, like, it doesn't really matter what he says, because the person who he's saying it to won't necessarily change his mind at all, right? I mean, Donald Trump is very is very known to. Um, be in a room with somebody and leave that room and say that he has had his mind changed and he believes in, in what they're saying and he's, uh, you know, ready to consider what they're talking about, but then he'll turn around and then he'll do a total 180. So there's really, regardless of what Kanye West was saying, because, yes, he was advocating for ending stop and frisk. He was advocating for more mental health institutions. But th- you're talking to somebody who won't change his mind on that. 
Right. So the tactics that Kanye is using to get in that room and have that conversation are doing more harm than, than good, no matter what he says to him. David, Kanye also had some thoughts about the uh, abolishing the, the 13th Amendment. And when it comes to, like, students, do you think what he's doing is being, like, more helpful to students actually understand that part of the Constitution, or it's actually making it worse? If you're proving him wrong, right, which is proven wrong, then they're, they're, you're giving more of a nuance to the 13th Amendment, which needs to be done. But uh, and, and I hope that Kanye West is encouraging what he's saying, encourages people to um, watch Ava DuVernay's documentary on the 13th Amendment, which is something that is actually grounded um, in fact and information as opposed to what Kanye West is saying. So for that, I guess it's good that he's actually bringing up that there are more than just abolishing slavery in the 13th Amendment, even though he has clearly no understanding of the amendment whatsoever. We know that he's a lot of criticism for, uh, you know, the things that he was saying. Do you think that there was anything positive coming out of uh, his is, uh, I guess you can call it a rant or a monologue that he did had at the briefing. Uh, no, I, I don't. I don't think so because, uh, like I said, like you, you're talking to somebody who won't, cha- you know, like who won't change his mind. I mean, if, if if Donald Trump is going to say the things that he says about African countries, or you know, he won't even apologize for putting out an ad wanting to um, murder five innocent black men in New York, then what, I mean, do you think that, like, Kanye West wearing a MAGA hat and saying, um, you know, stop mass incarceration is going to make Donald Trump certainly change his mind? I don't I don't believe that's the case, and I don't believe that Kanye West even really made a compelling argument. He just said things um, without really giving any, any information. There's a lot of information he could give, if he were able to or had a desire to engage in the work, but he does not. So it's going to fall on deaf ears. I mean, even if you talk to somebody who is malleable to different ideas, that person may not follow what Kanye West is saying because Kanye West did not have any sort of definite information to provide. In this kind of period of time with Kanye and everything he's saying, it seems like a journalist a journalist's dream because there's constantly always something to write about. But what would you advise your students to do with this uh, Kanye situation and uh, their perspective on it and what they write about it? So, yeah, so, um, you know, I would I've encouraged them because we, we do, um, you know, writing projects every every week on sort of the current events. And so uh, I believe one of the students is doing something on on. Kanye and his meeting, and, and it's really just, you know, interesting for them to understand, you know, all, all of the facets that work here. They need to understand Donald Trump and his politics. They need to understand what Kanye West is saying, and they need to have an, a historical understanding of the two men involved, right, and the issues that they're presenting. So, you know, a lot of times I feel like a lot of a lot of students don't understand the journalism of an opinion piece, for instance, right? The journalism that goes into the the Internet research, which sometimes can be harder than just calling up an expert and just having them tell you everything for 30 minutes, right? So sometimes it's it's just difficult to scour the Internet for as much information as possible. So this is a lot of different moving parts, and you really have to organize your thoughts um, to make sure that you can be as informed as possible like i sort of have an advantage because 
I recall a lot of Kanye West's career. Like, I remember it. I lived it. I was there for it. So I don't have to dig in through a lot of historical stuff, maybe just to back up stuff that I already remember, right? I mean, I don't know how, how old you guys were when College Dropout came out. It was, what, 16, 15 years ago, 14 years ago. So I, y'all probably, I mean, you know, I was in high school, so I, I remember it. But I, I don't know how much you guys remember something like that. So you got to dig into it. I've been a Kanye fan pre-Yeezus, so I, I can tell you college dropout line for line. But what do you advise for journalists that are, are going through that process of trying to stay neutral in it because of the fact that it's hard for people to gauge this Kanye situation? Because like you said, you've had great experiences with this man. Yeah, I mean, part of the part of journalism and doing this is understanding that at some point, all of your heroes are most likely going to disappoint you, right? So that's where, you know, bias has to leave the equation. You know, like, um, just this year alone, I've written about some of people that I have loved and followed and been a fan of for, for years, and I've had to write very difficult things, difficult criticisms about them because they've fallen short. And especially, you know, in this era of Me Too and this era of, um, you know, where, where things are more documented, you're going to have people who you have admired and lived and looked up to, and they will have done things that you have to really take them to task for. You know, you have to really reckon with the things that they've done and how we as fans have allowed them to do that, right? So it's, it's difficult, but you got to have the understanding that the work that you're doing is more important than your support of that person. We've talked about Kanye from a, a political standpoint and a journalistic standpoint, but from a, a rap standpoint, I know, Mr. Dennis, you just said, you know, you've been listening to Kanye since high school, and you've seen kind of this evolution of hip-hop. How, you know, we've never really seen a rapper, you know, go out on a limb like this politically, you know, he's lost many fans. How, how do you think this, you know, Kanye's overall actions are impacting his career? I mean, I think he's sort of reached a point of no return for a lot of people. You know, like we can um, look at some of his music from the past and appreciate it and appreciate it for what it was. But, I mean, it, it, it's hard to make a music that's great enough to um, get over what he's doing now. You know, you can't go on national television and say slavery was a choice and then have people say, well, that's fine. We'll excuse it. Let me, I'm still going to get into your new album. You know, like his, it it, it helps that his music has, has gotten worse on through the years, you know, like his, uh, yay was not that good of an album, which was easy to dismiss. It'd be different if he was still making like great classic music and people had to really decide not to listen to it. Um, but it's sort of easy to dismiss because it hasn't been that, that good. So, you know, I think he he is he has a place in history, uh, but uh, you know, the more he does this, the more he's rewriting his legacy for the worse. Well, I just want to touch on a Tucker. He just said that um, a lot of rap artists they haven't stepped out on a limb like this as far as uh, political things, and I think that they just haven't stepped out in the way Kanye has stepped out. There's like a general um, idea or consensus of like what what 
we as black people think politically and Kanye has gone complete opposite of this. Uh, and that people have even said like in his slavery is a choice remark that he was basically saying that, you know, it was kind of like our mental state wasn't in a, in a, he didn't articulate that correctly. And he didn't articulate that period. Um, but people are saying that it was probably coming from the place that he felt like we could have freed ourselves earlier. And um, what do you feel about that? Like that, lack of room for black thought to be outside of the norm of black perspective. Well, I think there's a, I think there's a lot of room for diverse thought within the black community, right? The only the problem with Kanye West is that he is not informed about like he is not like if you set Kanye West down and had a philosophical discussion about it, you will find that there is not a lot there beyond a lot of some sort of superficial surface level discussion. Like you take somebody, um, like, like Killer Mike, you take somebody like Killer Mike who has a lot of politics that, um, a lot of, you know, left leaning black folks would disagree with. Killer Mike, you know, is, is a Bernie, a, a Bernie brother, right? He is a, um, a, a second amendment, defender to the death right he is is an nra supporter all these things that will sort of go against a lot of what you would traditionally think that some you know in the um you know democratic or left-leaning black community would would go with but killer mike is a very intelligent person right he is an intellectual he is a reader he is somebody who um does a lot of that intellectual work that yes, we, we I may disagree with him, but we could sit down and have a debate for four hours about these things, right? The problem with Kanye West is not necessarily the opinions themselves; it's the lack of effort or a lack of thought that goes into these opinions. That when he jumps off the ledge, there he he has nothing else to hold on to when he's saying these things. Like he doesn't have anything beyond these sound bites. I mean, you get he had ten minutes of unfiltered discussion to have in front of the president of the United States and on national television, he did not have anything worth, uh, worth bringing home, you know, with that discussion. Well, I was, I was just going to mention, you know, LeBron show the shop on HBO, uh, aired his second episode a few nights ago and they had Drake on the show and Drake was explaining basically the beat between him and Pusha T and the interaction that took place between him and Kanye before he dropped his last album and, and all of that. Were you, were you able to see that? And if you were, um, what were your thoughts on that, on what Drake said about Kanye? Yeah, so I watched The Shop. I love The Shop. Um, I thought Drake uh, <laughs> Drake is, doing, is engaging in some classic sort of spin PR. I believe what Drake said. Like, I believe that he went there and played Kanye the music and got duped by Kanye, and Kanye was behind the push of the teeth. I, I totally, I believe when, when he says that, and especially now seeing the person that Kanye, you know, like he, like he definitely seems capable of, of, of snaking Drake like that. But it's sort of a diversion from the fact that Drake got mopped up by push the teeth, right? So, you know, it's sort of two different things going on. Like, I can believe Drake and what Drake's saying, um, but that's sort of that's sort of irrelevant to what's going on here. What's going on here is that Drake and Pusha T were engaged in a rap a rap beef or rap battle, whatever. And Drake 
which was silly on his part, gave Pusha T's producer, somebody signed, somebody signed to Kanye West's label, he gave Kanye West all the fodder you would need to to take him down, right? And so um, that was a tactical error on Drake's part. He um, believed somebody he should not have believed in. Uh, but with that said, you know, as much as Drake wants to diss Kanye West, it's sort of pointless now because nothing that Drake can say about Kanye West will do worse for Kanye's career than he's doing in himself right now. Do you think that Kanye can rebound? I, I, I mean, I guess maybe, you know, maybe because, I mean, he, he is somebody with, you know, with documented mental health issues, right? And so if he can, you know, find some real rehabilitation and then find some real, you know, a real uh, way to come back and, and reckon with what he has done, right? Some real contrition, some real, like, how do we make this better? How can I make this better? And really talking to people who can inform him about how to make these things better and how to sort of get himself together, then, then yeah, I think it's possible. At the same time, like, this is something that people just won't forget. Like, I won't forget that he's doing this. So do you think that black people would be quicker to forgive Kanye in the situation than uh, say white people or another group of people attached to this? I don't. Th- I don't know. I mean, it's tricky because, like, I don't think I don't know how many white people think Kanye like are taking this. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many white people Kanye West is harming by doing this, as opposed to black people. Right? He's doing more damage to black people than he is to white folks in the first place. They have less to forgive. So I'm sure if he comes out with a new catchy song, then. I'm sure he'll top charts and and do all that that stuff because that has not really been a, a you know a barometer for how black people feel about him. So uh, I, I don't know. It sort of depends on how he how he works himself into into some sort of comeback. Um, how does you think his decline or his unraveling compare to like other artists, like maybe like Lauren Hill or anybody else that you've seen, like just you know gone downhill where their career was. This is probably the worst I've ever seen unless we're talking about somebody who's committed a crime. Like, this is the worst I've seen without a crime being committed, right? Unless we're talking, like, Bill Cosby or O.J. or Mike Tyson. Like, they all they had, like, crimes, um, right. you know, connected to it, right? Kanye West doesn't have a crime. This is just a, a, a public relations nightmare that we haven't seen really ever, you know? Um I, you know, I, it's, it's hard, and, and even though Lauren Hill had a, a fall, I mean, she was not. She put out one album. She put out a Fuji album. And she put out one solo album. Like Kanye West has been a constant for fifteen years now. You know, and so right. um, it was sort of it's sort of easier for Lauren Hill to fall off than Kanye West. But Kanye West has has you know a really long standing career. So um, in terms of that, I, I, I haven't seen anything quite like this. Especially like a self-sabotage, you know, like you look at Ja Rule and like other people did this to Ja Rule. But Kanye West is sort of, this is a self-sabotage. All right. Well, thank you so much, David, for all your help today. Um, I know Tucker, he's going to look forward to taking another one of your classes in the future. Stay on top of him. (laughs) All right. All right. Thank you so much, Mr. Dennis. All right. Thank you guys for having me. Before we close, 
I got a chance to sit down with some professors at Howard University, Kyle Murdoch, audio engineering professor, and Dr. Jules Harrell, a psychology professor. Here's what they had to say about the Kanye situation. Dr. Harrell, what do you think about the Kanye situation and you discussing it in your classes? My perspective on, on somebody like you know, like Kanye being brought out as a, uh, an expert on, on these types of issues takes me back to the years that uh, people like, uh, people would say, well, James Brown, the uh, entertainer, or Sammy Davis Jr., the entertainer, they sort of speak for all black people. Uh, and in fact, that isn't the case, that an individual like uh, Kanye West has certain expertise in certain lanes and certain talents and certain gifts. To pull him over into areas that he knows nothing about and knows nothing, nothing about the complexity of is to me sort of a, uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's like a cynical kind of a play on the part of those in power to have black, oh, this is what black people are all about. See, Kanye said this, and then therefore black people say that. That's an insult to us. Now, his own uh, issues and the way he looks at this, to me, uh, it looks at it, you know, some of the matters that are talked about there are really not all that important. Because in fact, you know, they're, they're, they're not informed by you know they're not informed by scholarship. They're not they're not informed by uh, you know careful analysis and, and conversations with people in a classroom or in a in a uh, symposium or in a uh, even in a think tank. They're not informed by that. But there are people who do that all day long and think about these things. Why not bring them in to talk? Don't bring in an ex-athlete, James uh, uh, Jim Brown, who you know was a wonderful athlete in his day. And it's done some good things, and, and it stood up. But why bring them in when others more serious are talking about these things? Well, it's done as sort of a cynical ploy to say, okay, here's what black people reduced to. All right, Professor Murdoch, Professor Kyle Murdoch, Howard University's famed audio engineering professor. What are your thoughts on the Kanye West situation? I know you talk a lot about popular culture in your classes. What's the importance of that? And what are your thoughts on the Kanye situation and Trump in the White House? So the way I address popular culture in my class is that um, prior to starting the class, I usually, you know, ask everyone what's going on, what they think about certain things that have happened, particularly if it's a Monday class and stuff has transpired over the weekend. And obviously, um, when it came to pop culture in the last couple of weeks, it's all been around, you know, one of the hot topics has been about Kanye, this MAGA hat, his support of Trump, which is definitely for a lot of people are just stumped like what is this what, what's wrong with this dude he's is he really in the sunken place um and personally i do think i don't know what's what's happening with Kanye. i don't know him personally just i just know him as a fan of his music i was a fan i really haven't listened to a lot of his music probably since the easiest it kind of lost me um and i think all the stuff he's been making in the last 10 years with the exception of, I guess, 808s and Heartbreaks, it's just not really been my, as you all say, wave. <laughs> I haven't been on that wave. But I do think I, I appreciate him. I would not call him a genius. I know everyone's, he's a genius and all this stuff. But um, I think he's a really talented dude. I, I, I appreciate that fact that he tries to think out the box. I don't know if he's just doing this as a way of saying everyone's against Trump and we needed someone from the community to embrace him and, and look past the, the lines that divide us. But there's just a lot of stuff that Trump has said and done that I can't get behind. And even though I know Kanye is saying we got to look past that, it's just certain things as a as a young black man, a father of, 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 of women, 
uh, especially with all the Kavanaugh stuff that just happened right now and the way he kind of made fun of that. I was like, I really can't. I mean, just when I think there's nothing Trump can do to make me like detest him anymore, he does something, and I'm like, wow. So the bar has not even been lower. It's be it's it's under the ground at this point, like to the point where I feel like the president, anyone can be president. That's why I heard The Rock is going to run in 2020. Kanye was joking about 2024, which is saying I guess Trump is going to try to run again. Naturally, I'm like, man, this anyone. Hell, I could be president probably, right? You know? So, I, I, anyway. When it comes to Kanye, I think, I just don't know, man. He's, he's lost. He's, he, I feel like he needs somebody in his corner who really will just sit him down and be like, dude, this is not you, or maybe this has always been Kanye and we just didn't know, but I feel like somebody who really and genuinely loves him, which I would think his wife would do, needs to sit him down and have a come to Jesus or come to Jesus moment with this dude and let him know, um, he might want to rethink about some of the things he's saying and actions that he's doing. So it looks like Kanye's visit to the White House has not only struck a nerve with a lot of folks, but it has also provided many lessons in how to cover celebrities who share unpopular perspectives. I know I was motivated to get more familiar with the 13th Amendment myself and how other celebrities and activists are working to improve awareness about mental health issues. We'll stop that conversation here, but I'm sure Kanye will be in the news again soon. Well, that's all we have for you guys today. If there's anything you'd like us to cover, or if you just want to leave us a comment, tweet us at the undefeated hashtag Fellows. You can also contact us directly I'm on Instagram at T-T-A-Legend. That's T-T-A-L-E-G-E-N-D. I'm also on the gram at TuckT52. That's T-U-C-K-T-52. And you can find me on Twitter at underscore, underscore, man of the hour. That's underscore, underscore, M-A-N-O-F-T-H-E-H-O-U-R. All right. Thanks for listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows podcast. This show is produced by Aaron Mathewson. Special thanks to Tarika Foster Brasby and Kyrie Williams. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcast, as well as the plug, The Right Time with Bomani Jones and Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast. And don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at the sports world and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone.